0: Occasionally, there are moments that we witness that are, that are so personal, so intimate, so private, that they make us extremely uncomfortable. We feel like voyeurs peeking into a window. You know, there are times, and I've had a few of them myself, when, when you think, I'm not sure that I know this person well enough to be a witness to this obviously personal, private moment. There are times when the intensity of a moment draws us in. And, and we realize that we've transitioned from witness. Oh, okay. For those who don't read lips, I'll start again. <laughs> Occasionally there are moments that, that we witness that are so personal, so, so intimate, so private, that they make us extremely uncomfortable. We feel like voyeurs peeking into a window. You know, there are times, and I've been in a few of them myself, when you think, you know, I'm not sure that I know this person well enough to witness what is obviously a very personal, private moment in their lives. And there are times when the intensity of a moment draws us in. And we realize that we have transitioned from being a witness to being a participant. Jesus in the garden is one of those moments. On Thursday evening, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem, presumably by one of the gates on the South City Wall, less than 300 meters from the location of the house where they had the upper room and the Last Supper. And they stopped in the garden called Gethsemane. Unknown to the disciples, they had shared their Last Supper with Christ. Jesus brought a few of his disciples in and then asked them to pray with him. You know what happens. Their eyes were heavy and they fell asleep. Already they had failed him. And Jesus was alone as he battled with his own fear and weakness. This is a moment of personal, intimate, private struggle that that makes us want to look the other way. But we mustn't. No matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel, and it should make us feel very uncomfortable indeed, we need to watch and learn and pray. There's a struggle between Jesus' own will and the will of the Father. Fear of pain, fear of of death, fear of rejection, fear of isolation, fear of the weight of our sins crushing down upon him like a tsunami of cement. All these things become a massive load to bear. God's word declares that, that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. But in this moment, it is Jesus' humanness that sets the agenda. The struggle continues until Jesus' will has finally surrendered to the will of the Father. Then the disciples were awakened by Jesus just as the soldiers were coming to arrest him. After a short panic a good measure of confusion, a bit of unfortunate, out-of-place sword-wielding, and an impromptu healing of a soldier's ear, the disciples fled. Jesus was taken into custody to begin what would be a very long, difficult, painful, exhausting, lonely journey to the cross. We, We all know the accounts of what happened in the garden you know, they're recorded for us in the various Gospels, with, with each Gospel emphasizing different details along the way to give us a rich, multifaceted view of what happened that night. But in Mark's Gospel, we have something surprising. Something even puzzling, only found in his Gospel. Mark writes, Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's all it said. It's a strange bit of background that Mark includes in his gospel. It seems like a trivial point in the context of what is a very emotional climatic moment and a very emotional climatic week. And there's lots of times we wish the gospel writers would give us more information. After all, we know that there's great economy in the gospels. But here, here we're looking at this passage and we say, what's with the naked teenager running around the garden? We don't know anything definitive about this naked guy, but tradition tells us that it was probably Mark. I think that's a good guess because it's only in Mark's gospel. This then becomes his Alfred Hitchcock or his Stan Lee moment, where he gives himself a cameo in his work. To add to the credibility of that possibility, we also have similar precedents in the Gospel of John, where he appears but isn't named directly. Instead, he calls himself the beloved disciple. So I I personally believe this is Mark running around the garden naked and afraid. At least it's as good as any other guest that we might have. But still, if this is Mark adding this bit of trivia about himself, why does he do it? You know, is this the equivalent of a gospel photobomb? No. You know, one of the things we should consider when we study the Bible is to take note of the strange, out of place moments that we come across, because they are often the very thing that illuminates the original message that we are to receive from the text. It's a principle. You know, they're like spiritual speed bumps. It's like Yahweh is telling us, slow down and think. Wrestle with this odd little nugget, because there's gold to be had. Okay, well, what's the gold to be had? Well, in the very least, we have this bit of information that really does underline the credibility of God's Word. You know, if Mark's account of the garden was a fabrication rather than an historical account, this kind of information would never have been included. You know, a product of the imagination doesn't add weird little out of the place moments. As we write and tell the story, anything that doesn't fit, anything that doesn't matter, ends up on the editing floor. In other words, what we read in the gospel is history. It really happened. And the strange little moment in Mark's account is included, if for no other reason than it really happened that way. It may not have been important for any of the other gospel writers to include in their accounts, but it certainly was important to Mark to include it in his. Okay, but... Was it only important to Mark to include this little tidbit just to add veracity or credibility to the historical reliability of the gospel? No. I I don't think Mark's motivation was about adding things so that people will understand that he's communicating a reality, a historical fact. I think he just assumed that people would understand that's what he was doing. Well, let me give you another point to think about as you study God's word. Look for reoccurring patterns. Look for reoccurring patterns. All through the Old and New Testament, there are reoccurring patterns and themes that that illuminate what's going on in Scripture. Think of them as part of God's thumbprint or as part of an inspired spiritual shorthand. You see, when, when patterns are repeated, what's being communicated is the significance of the events that occurred when the pattern first occurred or first appeared. Here's what I think is going on. We have a historical fact that can also be fit into a key biblical pattern that would communicate deep spiritual significance as to what was happening in the garden the night of Jesus' arrest. but what about the pattern? You know, what is the pattern? What's the setting of the passage? They're in a garden, right? Do gardens have any significance in God's word? Are gardens a repeated theme in God's word? Well, let's see. The Bible begins with a garden, and it ends with a garden. In Genesis, the garden is the place of God's provision. It's the place of close communication with God. It's the place also of rebellion and sin. What's where it begins. Now, there's lots of other gardens throughout Scripture. The inspired biblical writers come back to this theme time and time again, all pointing to the original account in the garden. But let's just jump to the end of the story here. At the end of Revelation, you have heaven coming down to earth. And this is the image you have where this, this garden that's also a city, the holy city. And we're told that the dwelling place of Yahweh will once again be with his people. And we have this image of a temple and God's presence being the only light we need. And we have this river that brings life and healing and trees on both sides of the river. So, so God's word ends with this wonderful culminating image of a garden. And the idea is that what we messed up in the first garden, God through Christ will put right in the end, in the last garden and the only garden that really fully matters. Once again, the garden will be a place of relationship, of provision, of enjoyment, and of togetherness. No longer will there be anything that separates us from Yahweh or from each other. There'll be no more tears or sorrow or sickness or death or sickness or death. All that was wrong with the world, all that was broken, all the corruption we introduced will be purified and refined into something beautiful, something eternal, something that was meant to be. And in between the first and the final garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. In the first garden, as we as a result of our rebellion and sin, we recognized for the first time that we were naked and afraid. And we sought to hide from God and cover ourselves up. And, and in this garden, the historical event of a young man who was afraid and who became naked to avoid capture gives us the spiritual shorthand to understand the significance that all, of all that was about to happen. We are all naked and afraid. We all have moments of failure and fear. We all fall asleep when we should be awake. We are all surprised and confused by the events that surround us. In that private moment, almost too private to see, we find Jesus struggling, yet resolved. We see him at his weakest and also his most faithful. But we also see him resigned to go with his captors. Even though Jesus had prepared his disciples for this moment, they were not prepared. Who they wanted Jesus to be and what they wanted Jesus to do wasn't what happened in the darkness of the garden. So much confusion, so much change so many unknowns, and in the middle of all of that, the only certain thing, the only thing they knew for sure was how they had failed Christ. They were all naked and afraid. We are all naked and afraid. Now, as we look at these two verses in Mark and meditate on them and why they're they're there and how they fit in, we get an answer. We've all sinned. We've all at one time or another abandoned God. We've all dissipated only later to realize that we were naked and afraid. It is our nakedness and fear. It is our sin that causes us to fall asleep when we should stay awake. It, it causes us to betray, it causes us to run away. Jesus was arrested and, and placed on that cross so that by faith in his saving work and by seeing, seeking to be clothed in Christ, we will once again enter a garden that Yahweh himself will supply through Christ alone. So in this moment of nakedness, in this time of confusion, when, when what isn't But what is isn't what you planned for. Understand that God's still providing the solution. He's providing the solution for your confusion, your fear, and your nakedness. And that solution is and will always be Jesus Christ.